Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm covering in this audio James 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to entitle this section, The Sin of Partiality. There's some other good stuff in here about the law, which we'll take up also. Our context is this, the last part of chapter 1. James has told his readers how not to be hung by their tongue, as he talks about how do you control your tongue. The book of James has got a lot of exhortations in it. In fact, that's it's more exhortation than it is doctrine, really. We start with verse 1, chapter 2. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't show favoritism. Jesus didn't show favoritism. Neither should Christians show favoritism. After all, Jesus ate with tax gatherers as well as Pharisees, some bad folks. And if Jesus did that, we should do the same. You notice that James deals with his readers as brothers. He addresses them as brothers. That's a good way to address those who he is going to, those whom he is going to exhort against favoritism, because brothers are all equal in worth before Christ. And he says, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. Hold on to the faith, perhaps James is referring to the persecution of the early Christians by non-believing Jews. That's the last thing that the early Christian church needed was divisions between rich and poor, because they were all being persecuted whether they were rich or poor. Divisions like that would not help in that serious situation. We go here to James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. For example, James continues, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, in verse 2, James posits and a hypothetical situation a man comes into your meeting it's interesting the greek word there for meeting is synagogue from which we get the english word synagogue now commentators always point this out because usually the church in the new testament is called the ecclesia which is a greek word this shows that james was writing early to the jews before the church had become gentile and jewish it was mainly jews jewish at first before the persecution of stephen Stephen was persecuted about 34 A.D. and the persecution he was killed, and the persecution of the Jewish Christians started right on the same day. I think it says in Acts. And so the church at first was was still identified with the synagogues, and so thus the word. However, this was not a meeting in a synagogue. This was a meeting in a home. We know that because in verse three, James mentions the hypothetical situation where a host would say, sit here on the floor by my footstool. You don't have footstools in synagogues. A footstool is a piece of household furniture. And we know, of course, that all the early churches met in homes. The early church did not meet in church builders until Constantine, roughly, at the time Constantine turned all those pagan basilicas over to the church, and the church migrated into the to the large cathedrals, which in my opinion was a drastic mistake. This word meeting, synagogue, synagogue, is the only time in the New Testament that the word is used of a Christian meeting. It's always used for Jewish meetings otherwise. We think of the reference in Revelation 3.9. Take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan 
who claim to be Jews and are not. It's talking about unbelieving Jews. The author calls them a synagogue of Satan because they were persecuting the Christians. So that's just one example. In the New Testament, synagogue is always a Jewish synagogue, but here it's a Christian meeting. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown comments on the phrase, sit here in a good place, the host says to the rich man, sit here in a good place. It was the office of a deacon to seat members of a congregation, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who cite Clement of Rome, apostolical constitutions. Well, I don't know what Clement of Rome was talking about. The early church made it homes. Do you really need a deacon to seat, seat somebody in a home? I guess if it was a large home, had about could hold about 70 people in it, maybe you need somebody to do that. But I would think that most people could do that on their own. So I just wonder whether Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are importing their current day conditions into the scriptures, into their reading of the scriptures. Now, footstool is from the Greek word hupopodion. Hupodion, hupodion, hupo is under, podion is foot, and under the foot you put a stool under your foot. It's a piece of household furniture that one reclines, that you that one uses when he reclines and rests his feet on. You don't do that in a public place of worship. Now, Adam Clark is contrary to that. He says it's not a home. He says this is a Christian meeting that is meeting in a synagogue. Well, the first question I have about that is how are Christians going to get hold of a synagogue to meet in? Well, that can't. I just don't believe that. If chapter, in verse 2, it says a man came into your meeting. It sounds like a Christian meeting. Clark himself is not sure of his synagogue identification. He says James may be referring to proceedings in a court of justice. Of course, the courts met in synagogues back then. Well, that's not a, a legal meeting. It's not a judicial meeting. It's a church meeting. Well, I say that. I just assume that. I guess if you look at it and, and think about it from Clark's point of view, he comes into this courtroom meeting and you say to the rich man to the poor man stand over there or sit next to the footstool why would there be a footstool in a courtroom meeting i ask i don't know mr clark i don't understand that it doesn't really say it's a church meeting but folks it was a church meeting you can bank on that we go to verse well he says if you do this you discriminate between the rich and the poor you have evil thoughts james says i read somewhere that the early christians because so many of them were slaves and they were meeting in the homes of free people that that the church members decided to wear white robes so that nobody could distinguish the slaves from the free or especially from the noble Christians, the richer Christians. And they would wear white robes and they would only use their first names because somehow by naming conventions you could distinguish free people and slaves. Now, I haven't been able to confirm that. I just heard that somewhere. And so don't quote me on it. I wish I could find it. I've looked several times on the Internet and I've failed to come up with anything. I assume this conference speaker that I heard it from knew what he was talking about. We go to verse 5 of chapter 2. Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Now, one thing about the gospel of Christ, it penetrates into the poorest areas of the world. There are barefoot evangelists all over India spreading the gospel all over China. Jesus has a word for poor people. I've never been poor. Well, I've been relatively poor by American standards, but I'm, I'm talking about poor like in the third world poor. And I want to tell you something. I don't know how these poor people stand it. I just saw something last night about this charity called Charity Colon Water, where this guy's got this charity that spent over $300 million building wells all over poor areas of the world in South America and Africa and India. And to see those people drinking the water with all the 
crud and the bugs and the disease in it is just horrible. And boy, when people like that hear the gospel, yes, sir, they know Jesus loves them. Those people especially need love that they're not getting from their environment. And Jesus himself said, as James says here, God chose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Jesus said that, Luke 6:20. Then looking up at his disciples, he, Jesus said, you who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. Now he's talking about a spiritual kingdom, but you know, eventually good spiritual practices lead to good material benefits. It just as night follows day. Because God cares for his people. He'll, I mean, in Hebrews 13, where that verse that says that God will never leave you nor forsake you, the first half of that verse is talking about don't worry about money because God's not going to leave you or forsake you. You're in his kingdom. He's going to take care of you. And poor people need that because they've got nothing. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 30, Paul says this, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Now, Paul's not saying that everybody was poor that was a Christian, but there were not many. There were The majority were poor. The majority were slaves, actually. We can find out from church history. Instead, Paul continues, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There is nothing worse than arrogant people going around talking about how great they are. They're usually relatively rich. Nothing worse than that. Jesus doesn't care about all that. He cares about poor people. Matthew 11:5. And, and I'm not saying it's a sin to be rich. You always have to qualify your statements when you talk like this. It's no sin to be rich as long as you use your wealth as a steward to do good in this world. Matthew 11:5. the blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Well, when Jesus does stuff like that, yeah, people can come into the gospel, going to come to the gospel. Matthew 5, 3, Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit are blessed, Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So James was right. God did choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now, I already gave you my caveat about we don't want to say that it's a sin to be rich. There were biblical characters who were very rich. Abraham was loaded to the gills. Job, before his suffering, was loaded to the gills. And after his sufferings, he was rich too. Paul refers to rich Christians in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. He didn't tell them to give all their money away. He said, don't be arrogant and don't rely on your riches instead of God. Now, James says that God has chosen the poor to be heirs of the kingdom. Well, the kingdom, of course, is realized and not yet realized. That's a famous phrase of theologians. Yet and not yet. Not No, you don't say it that way. It, I forgot how they say it. But it's present and, but, and also future. John 3, 3. Here's some examples of how the kingdom of God is here now. And when I say now, I mean now at the time that Jesus spoke. John 3, 3, John replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that means as soon as you get born again, you see the kingdom of God. You're in it. John 3, 5, two verses later, Jesus answered, I assure you. He's talking to Nicodemus. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, baptism and the Holy Spirit, uh, water, baptism and water and the Holy Spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So as soon as you are born of the Spirit, as soon as you're born again, you enter the kingdom of God. You are a citizen in God's kingdom. But the kingdom is not fully realized yet. Here's an example in Matthew 25, 34, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25:46. And they, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the kingdom is not fully manifested yet. That would be when we get to heaven or when heaven is completely established, the final state here on earth after the sin is completely judged down here. So at whatever stage in the kingdom we are is a lot better than being in the world, I'll tell you that. James 2, verses 6 through 7. Yet you dishonored that poor man. James is referring to his mention of the host of a church saying to the rich man, sit down here and put your feet up on the stool while the poor man sits down by the footstool or stands over there in the corner. You dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Now, this is, of course, referring to rich unbelievers, prominent Jews who hated Christians. This was a typical thing, Acts 13, verse 50, but the Jews incited the prominent women who worshiped God and the leading men of the city. This is in Pisidian Antioch on the first missionary journey. Prominent women got stirred up. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. So the big shot, rich, unbelieving Jews did that in Pisidian Antioch. And this is the sort of stuff that was going on all over the place. And that's why James is saying, don't the rich oppress you. He's not talking about rich people in general. He's talking about rich, unbelieving Jews. Adam Clark says, no Christians in these early times could have acted the part here mentioned. Of course not. They wouldn't blaspheme. Christians wouldn't blaspheme. And But James says in verse 7, don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you? Don't they blaspheme that holy name? So these are rich, unbelieving Christians. Let me give you a quote from John Gill that backs up my statement that this is not to be understood as a blanket condemnation of all rich men. This is not to be understood of all rich men, nor is the apostles designed to destroy that natural and civil order there is among men by reason of their different stations, offices, and circumstances. It is being highly proper that honor should be given to whom honor is due, but not to the dishonor of another. Well, think about Sam Walton of Walmart. He's dead now, going to be with the Lord. He was a dedicated Christian. He was rich as Croesus. He was not an evil man. How about John D. Rockefeller? I know the high school textbooks talk about him being a robber baron. He was a darn good businessman, and he was gave his money to the church. Unfortunately, I think the church was somewhat liberal. But at any rate, he was, he was a believer. He was not an evil man. So there are Letourneau that gave 90% of his money away, the earth-moving equipment, magnet, there's lots of examples of that. And there's also the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world, the pedophile billionaire. So there's a lot of evil rich people too. So we need to be careful and not to overly generalize. You have to generalize to talk. I understand that. For example, when you say all cows give milk, well, 99.9% of them do. There's some that are sick, dried up, they won't give milk. But most of them do, so you can generalize. But you've got to be careful about generalizing about rich people. Same thing with poor people. Oh, poor people, they're doing drugs, they're in gangs. No, that's not necessarily so. They might just be poor. You've got to be careful about invidious distinctions. Now, the rich people that James is complaining about here drag the Christians into the courts. Adam Clark says that the administration of justice at that time was in a miserable state of corruption among the Jews. 
and that Christians were grievously oppressed and maltreated by their countrymen, the Jews. Nothing worse than getting dragged in the court to a corrupt court that doesn't care about you. Now, these unbelieving rich Jews blaspheme the name of God. Blasphemy means to dishonor, to defile, to profane, to drag through the dirt. Ezekiel 36, 21 through 22 says this, Then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. So the name of God is to be held in honor, and when you don't hold it in honor, you blaspheme God. Oh my God, how many times do you hear people say, Oh my God. I feel like saying, well, you know, why are you saying that? You don't really, you're not really calling on him. You're not asking him for help. You're living your own selfish, sinful, stupid lies, but get in trouble. Oh, my God. Romans 2.24, Paul says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Blasphemed among the Gentiles. That was a quotation somewhere in the Old Testament talking about the Jews behaving so poorly, and the Jews carried the name of Yahweh that the Gentiles says, hey, why would I want to be a believer in Yahweh, given the, the behavior of these Jewish people. It's the same thing with Christians. I tell you, Christians do terrible things, and you think, why would anybody want to be a Christian if Christians act the way they do? So no, don't blaspheme God by the way you act. I actually heard, this is secondhand, but I had a friend of mine tell me that he was talking to a Baptist guy who told him that if a black person came to his church, he would be asked to leave. Now, this is 1920, excuse me, 2020. And somebody's saying something like that. You know, why would you want to be a Christian? You hear crap like that. It's ridiculous. Now, a little translator's note about verse 7. The Homer Christian Study Bible says, Don't blaspheme the name that was pronounced over you at your baptism. At your baptism is brackets. That's the translator's interpretation. The NIV does not have that in its translation. The NIV just says, don't blaspheme, quote, the noble name to whom you belong. I don't know why the Homer Christian Study Bible did that. I guess they felt like they were going to be, get into the commentary business. Of course, we get baptized in the name of God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. But the, holy, the noble name is Jesus. I'm sure that's who the rich Jews were blaspheming. They wouldn't be blaspheming God, the Father, because they believed in him. They just didn't believe in the Son whom the Father sent. We proceed now to verse 8. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Now, this phrase, royal law, this is the only time in the scripture that it is used. There are lots of opinions as to why it's called the royal law and what it is. So let me give you some options. Here's the first option, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. It's the supreme law over all other laws. It's the summation of all laws. Well, I don't know what that means because are we talking about the Old Testament law of Moses, the New Testament law of Christ is a little bit fuzzy, a little bit too general for me, but it could be that James is referring to the royal law in the sense of the, the summation of the law that Jesus gave in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself, according to one opinion. Romans 13, 8-10, Paul quotes this. Well, it's a quotation from Leviticus, actually. And 
And Paul says in Romans 13, verse 9, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, dot, 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 all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So that could be the royal law is the summation of the law. It's the highest law. That's option number one. Option number two, I prefer, royal refers to kings. And so this is the law of the king. And who's our king? Jesus. So this is the law of Jesus or the law of Christ. And that, of course, fits right in with New Covenant theology, which I hold to. The law of Christ is mentioned where in Second Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6, I think, explicitly by Paul. The law of Christ can be summarized by John 13, 34. Jesus says, I give you a new command, a new law. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. John 15, 12, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the royal law, the law of the king, the law of Christ. Summarized as love one another. And we could also mention the Matthew 22 and Romans 13 verses I just quoted where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. That's option number two. Here's option number three, the royal law. This is according to John Gill. Christians are kings and priests, and this is the law they submit to. In other words, the royal law, because Christians are kings, is the law that Christians, it's the Christian law. Yeah, I think that's a little, I don't believe that. That's John Gill's idea. Adam Clark says it's the law of God. Just a general, it's the law of God, not mentioning the Old Testament and New Testament. Fifth option, it's a law that's royal in the sense that it is so useful, it's kingly, if you will, it's so useful, suitable, and necessary to the present state of man. Clark says the royal law was used that way often by secular Greek writers. Well, I don't know enough about secular Greek to know. I think it's better just to take the royal law as the law of Christ. Now, it's not the law of Moses, although some people say it is, because we're supposed to keep the law of Moses just like we're supposed to keep the law of Christ. And, of course, these are covenant theologians, and they say, but the law of the, the royal law, the law of Moses, is only the moral part of the law. Yeah, well, the problem with that is James pretty soon is going to say if you break the law in one point, you've broken it all. Well, that means if you broke the law in a judicial or ceremonial part, you've broken it all. So it, he can't be talking about the Mosaic law. And plus, he's going to call it the law of freedom in another place. Since when is the law of Moses called the law of freedom? This is the law of Christ. Now you say, well, it's prescribed in the Scripture, in the Scripture's Old Testament Scripture. Of course, they didn't have the New Testament Scripture yet. The canon was not complete then. And that's true. James is quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. And you say, well, see there, that proves that we're under the law of Moses. No, it does not prove that. Anytime a New Testament writer takes an Old Testament principle or an Old Testament law and then repromulgates it in the New Testament and says we need to obey this, well then now it's in the New Testament, is it not? And now it's the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, or not exclusively the law of Moses. Now, the scripture in Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your neighbor? Well, you know the old Samaritan story, the good Samaritan. The Jews thought everybody was their neighbor, but not those nasty Samaritans. And, you know, the, the human race loves to desi- divide itself up into tribes or ethnicities or whatever you want to call it. And pretty soon that it's, it's the color of your skin or what clothes you wear or you know, what language you speak. And that's your community and that's your neighbor. And nobody else is. Uh-uh. That ain't the way it works. What is that next 17? Alveda King likes to quote all the time about we were all... God has made us all nations from one man. Well, in the case of James here, when he's saying love your neighbor, he's referring to the poor guy that's being discriminated against in the church. 
and being shamed. He's your neighbor, and you're supposed to love him and don't make him feel bad when he comes into church. There's nothing worse. You know, I remember one time back in the 1960s, the late 60s, it was during the desegregation crisis in the South, and my high school had just gotten integrated for the first time, and racial tensions were high. And there was a high school football game that I was driving to by myself. I was a nerd. I didn't have a date. And I had an old 66 Dodge Dart, and I was driving to the game and got stuck. In. The traffic slowed down as you got near the stadium. And there was this poor black guy, young guy, and you could just tell by the clothes he was wearing he was poor. And he decided he wanted, he was walking to the game. And he had a long way to go. So I asked him, I said, would you like to ride? And he said, yes. So I, I got there, and um, we went up, and we were, got there early and went up to the top of the bleachers and was sitting there. And all of a sudden, I noticed that every white eye in that stadium was staring at us. And it was quite uncomfortable. I said, oh, my gosh, this is really bad. And uh, so anyway, I offered the guy, uh, if, if he'd like a drink, I went to go buy him a Coke. And I went to buy it, and I came back, and he was gone. He couldn't stand it. He was being shamed. I'll never forget that, folks. Shaming somebody, it ain't no excuse. Now, that wasn't Christians doing it. That was just people in the public. So that's a little bit different. But, I mean, for a Christian to do it is even worse because there's no excuse. James 2, verses 9 through 10. But if you show favoritism, James continues, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The law he's referring to there is the same royal law as mentioned, which, and it's also in Leviticus. And yes, it's in the Old Testament, but it's repeated again as the law of Christ. You're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. Now, again, that's the verse, verse 10 is what I said earlier. If you're going to start saying, well, you know, it's okay if the law of Moses is still in effect for the New Testament. Hey, but if you fail in one point, that includes, if you're going to say that James is talking about the Mosaic law here, that includes the ceremonial law. Hey, you didn't offer oxen for sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Uh, oh, you didn't stone your homosexual son or your rebellious son. And, you know, on you go. If you fail, you fail in one point, you're guilty of it all. So I don't think we can take the law of Moses as some kind of rule of life for Christians in the New Testament. Well, if he's, if James is talking about the law of Moses here, if he's talking about the royal law, which is the royal law of Christ, which is what I believe he is referring to. I'm not dead sure, but I believe that's what he's referring to. Either way, you're convicted. And if these Jewish Christians are still trying to keep the law, which they might have been, James is saying, hey, well, you know, you're trying to keep the Mosaic law. Well, you're not even doing that. You're not doing that because you're, you're showing partiality. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, why would James mention whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all? Why would he say that? Well, the rabbis had an interesting way of interpreting the law. They said, if you can just keep one aspect of the law, you're clean on, on all other aspects. For example, if you can avoid having idols in your house and you don't go to idol festivals, you don't worship idols, well then, you're clean from the strictures of the rest of the law. You don't have to worry about committing adultery or look, look, um, or coveting what your neighbor has or perjuring yourself and all the other Ten Commandments and all the other laws. It doesn't matter. All you got to do is find one point. You keep that one point. You've kept it all. Well, James reverses that and says, no, you violate one point. You violated it all. So, I really suspect the more I look at this, I think that when James says they're convicted by the law, he's referring to the Christians who are still not free from that Mosaic law, and they're still they're still legalist. And James is saying, okay, well, even by the law that you that you love so much, you're convicted by it because you keep the law. You 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 
doing everything right according to Moses, but you're showing you're showing favoritism toward the rich and against the poor. So you might as well be guilty of it all. I don't think that this means, of course, that Christians ought to be under the Mosaic Law's rule of life. This is the great verse, as I mentioned earlier, for Reformed Christians who follow Aquinas and Calvin, some theological heavy hitters, who slice and dice the law into three parts, the ceremonial, the judicial, and the moral. And they do this so they can be out from under the law and under the law at the same time. They're out from the ceremonial and judicial parts, and they're under the moral parts. That's not going to fly, folks. Christians are under the law of Christ. Now, whether these particular Hebrew Christians were erroneously under the law of Moses and James is saying you're convicted by that law, to me is a minor point. If it's true, then James is kind of as a concession to him say, okay, if you, given the fact that you are erroneously trying to keep the law, you ain't keeping it when you show favoritism. Now, this idea about failing in one point of keeping the law makes you guilty of breaking it all. Here's a key verse here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:18 through 19. For I assure you, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the, the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, you fail in one point, you know, you break one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says the same thing. You can't just you can't say that you've kept the law unless you kept it all, including the least little stroke or dot. And by the way, it says until heaven and earth pass away. I believe that is a rabbinic reference to the Old Testament Jewish system that killed Jesus and the prophets. That was passed away in AD 70. And this is not one letter or stroke will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. I think accomplished means finished when Jesus says it is finished on the cross. And so he's talking about when the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant and its Pharisaic accretions, when that is done away with, then the law is going to be kaputsky. He's not talking about till the end of time because then you got the problem of, oh, I got to submit to the law till the end of time, including I can't plant tomatoes and cucumbers in the same garden. Until the end of time? No, that doesn't make any sense. So that, that's, a, that's a key verse. Matthew 23, 23 also illustrates this point about the fine points of the law. You've got to keep them all. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. And so Jesus is saying you've got to keep it all, the little parts and the big parts. The big parts and the little parts. The law is the expression of God's character and will. So to break even one little part of the law is to violate God's will. And you violate God's will. You've broken the whole law. Now, this does not mean that all sins are equal, as John Gill points out. And so many Christians say this. It drives me crazy because it's completely and utterly wrong. John 19:11 says this. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greatest, the greater sin. That's referring to Judas. A greater sin? See, there's some sins that are greater than others. I mean, shop, I shoplifted a 10-cent slingshot once. I felt terribly guilty about it until Jesus forgave me for that sin. Until I confessed it, I was miserable about it. But I'm going to tell you something. Stealing a 10-cent slingshot, it ain't nearly as bad as going out and murdering somebody or raping somebody or committing uh, homosexual or uh, adulterous acts with somebody. Oh, no. The consequences are much worse when you break a big law as opposed to a little law. 
Now, all sins are equal in one sense. You break a little sin, you're just as guilty, and you're going to hell as if you break a big sin. Punishment might be different when you get there, but you're still going. So they're equal in the sense that they make you guilty, but the punishments are not the same. The effects are not the same. Some laws are more important than others. We go now to verse 11, James 2. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. And again, James is referring to that rabbinic practice. Oh, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm safe from, from the aspersions of all the other commandments of the law. So I didn't commit adultery, so I can go out and murder somebody. Well, that's, of course, is absurd. And James uses that obvious point to drive his point home. You, you who think you're so self-righteous when you're discriminating against that poor guy in the church, you are a lawbreaker. It's just the same as you broke adultery, adultery law or murdering law. You're a lawbreaker. Again, the punishments are different. That's, that's, it's, much, it's much worse to murder somebody and commit adultery than to show partiality to a poor brother in the church meeting, of course. But that's not what James's point is. The point is, is you violated God's law when you do this. Now, James uses two of the most egregious examples of not loving your neighbor, adultery and murder. And, of course, he does that because he's talking about loving your neighbor, loving your, loving your brother, and not shaming him in the church. I'm sure he's trying to think, okay, you think you're so great because you didn't commit adultery and you hadn't committed murder. Well, I just want to associate adultery and murder in your minds with what you're doing. All three involve breaking God's law. So maybe you better not do that anymore. We go to James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now James says, speak as well as act. He's big on the tongue, as I mentioned in the last portion of chapter 1. Here's some examples from James 1, last portion of the chapter. James 1:19. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to speak when you're getting angry, you know. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. So, too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. I mean, I just this is great stuff here. And we could go on about what the tongue can do, and we'll do that when we get to James chapter 3. So James has a lot to say about speaking. So here I'm sure he's talking about speaking in such a way as not to discriminate against that poor brother. Don't look down on him. Don't say bad things to him. And also act, because action without words is nothing. In the previous chapter, James says, don't be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And so here he links speaking and acting together. Speak and act. Talk and walk, if you can put it that way. Now he says, speak and act how? As those who will be judged by the law of freedom. Now the law of freedom can't be the law of Moses because keeping Moses' law is slavery. James has already mentioned that phrase in chapter twenty, in verse 25 of chapter 1. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not for forgetful here, this person will be blessed. The law of freedom is talking about the law of Christ. As John Gill and Adam Clark say. John Gill's got a great quote here. He says, heathens will be judged by the law of nature, their conscience, Jews by the law of Moses, that's unbelieving Jews, and those who live under the gospel dispensation according to the gospel of Christ. That's the law of Christ. 
Adam Clark says the law of freedom is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the law of Moses. And that's why I think royal law is referring to the law of freedom, which is referring to the law of Christ. The law of Moses brings slavery to sin. The law of Christ brings freedom from sin. Now, James says that we should be speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. The law of Christ does have judgment in it, folks. But the judgment is not to determine eternal destiny, as the NIV Study Bible says, because it is addressed to Christians who already already believe. But Christians are subject to, just judgment, uh, to uh, judgment for temporal judgments, but not eternal. For example, in John 5:24, we read this: Jesus says, "I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life." So you believe, you hear Jesus, you believe. In the God who sent him, you've got eternal life. You're not coming into eternal judgment. So it's not talking about eternal judgment, but it's talking about how God is going to judge you temporally in this life. Or it could be talking about how God is going to reward you with rewards in the next life. Because as we know, judgment is both positive and negative. You can receive a positive judgment, which means you got a good thing. Here's some examples. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, the foundation of his work, his Christian ministry work, with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day, that's probably the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through fire. I just had an interesting thought. What if Paul is not talking about judgment day fire? What if he's talking about the fire persecution that will burn your church up, burn your work up. What if he's talking about temporal judgment? I'm not so sure that's an off-the-wall idea. I haven't ex- examined it yet. Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ. Now this is referring to the end. So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. There's judgment, see? So Christians are going to get judgment. Good judgment. Well, it says we must all appear. That means bad guys, believers as well as non-believers. The non-believers are going to get repaid for the evil they've done. The believers are going to get repaid for the works of Christ that they've done. Revelation 22:12. Look, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. So there is judgment in the law of Christ. Judgment in the New Testament. We need to remember that. You know, a lot of times covenant theologians will say that New Covenant theologians only talk about love. They don't talk about judgment. We've got to have the law of Moses for judgment. Let me tell you something. The law of Christ is stricter than the law of Moses. Moses said, don't lust, or don't commit adultery. Jesus said, don't lust. Moses said, don't, get, don't murder. Jesus said, don't get angry. So the law of Christ is strict, and I believe that's what James is talking about here. Jesus don't, don't like it, doesn't like it when you show partiality to a rich man over a poor man in church. He just doesn't like that. But judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. That sort of sounds like the old Eastern religion concept, the karma. What goes around comes around. So judgment is without mercy, and that's talking about being judged by the law of freedom, the law of Christ. Oh, you don't show mercy to people? Jesus is going to punish you. Oh, but little Jesus, meek and mild, would never do that to me. Oh, yes, he would. Judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Now let's look at some scriptures showing mercy. Proverbs 21:13. The one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. You don't give money to the poor when you need help. You're not going to get any. James has just finished saying that, didn't he? Let me read that again to you where James said that. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. You're going to get judged if you don't show mercy. Matthew 5, 7, the merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Famous passage here in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. And that's not meant to be literal, by the way, those symbolic numbers. That means seven is the divine number, ten is the number of completion. So with divine perfection, as many times as it takes, you forgive him. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who, showed, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, well, tiny amount. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into the prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went out and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. And basically that parable is saying, God forgave you of everything. The amount of forgiveness he gave to you was uncountable and unlimited. And now you can't forgive some little tiny thing. I'm, this, uh, I've mentioned this several times, but several years ago I was in China and a guy cheated me out of 70 RMB, which is about $10. And it took me two years to forgive that guy. Two years he made me so mad. I mean, Jesus forgave me for a whole lot worse than 70 RMB, I'll tell you that. So he forgave me for all that, and I can't forgive that guy for 70 R&B? Come on. Now, those were all good scriptures showing that you better not judge. You better show mercy, I should say. You better show mercy. But we need to balance off that teaching because sometimes you do have to judge. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does that mean we're not supposed to judge? Well, I don't think so because we read in John 12:48, The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Well, that's God judging the Christian. That's not a problem. But here's a verse that says that Christians are supposed to judge. Stop judging. This is John 7, verse 24. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Judge according to righteous judgment. And that's a command, folks. That's not a suggestion. We're supposed to judge. So how do we explain that in verse 13? Mercy triumphs over judgment, and yet we're supposed to judge. And then, of course, the Christian will quote that overused verse, judge not that you be not judged. Well, how do you reconcile that with John 7, 24? Judge righteous judgment. Judge not that be not judged. Well, the key is in the adjectives. Judge righteous judgment. Don't judge without mercy. Because in James here, for judgment is without mercy. To the one who hasn't shown mercy, the implication is, is to the one who is merciless. 
Judgment is out without mercy to the one who hasn't judged mercifully. Mercy triumphs over merciless judgment. That's what he means. He's not talking about don't do any judgment at all. Because we're supposed to judge righteously and we're supposed to temper our judgments with mercy. And we have to do this all the time. How do I punish my employee? How do I punish my kids? A judge, when he's passing sentence, he's got to do the same thing. And judgment shouldn't be so harsh that it leaves no room for repentance and restoration. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with James chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 13. In our next audio, we will take up James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and we will discuss that often discussed issue of faith and works. Are we justified by works as well as by faith? Why did Martin Luther call this a Stroy epistle and want to get rid of James? Because James said we need to be justified by works. Interesting, deep theological questions coming up in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one. And I certainly hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>